This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the third episode of History Chatter. In the last episode, uh, we were talking about the lonely struggles of a small group of people. They had been dreaming for a new nation-state for decades, but uh, it didn't come about, and their struggles were quietly forgotten. In this episode, it may be useful to ask why, and how some episodes in history are forgotten, and others are remembered. There are many answers, really. We'll talk about one of those. In this episode, we'll talk about how the state often directs and manages how history is to be served to the people. Why and how does the state have so much power over the business of reading and learning history? Let me offer a perspective on that question by recalling two incidents from Indian history in recent past. I myself wrote about them only two years ago. Here we go then. History and the state. The first story goes back two years. The second story goes back roughly the same time, a few months later. In February 2017, the Board of Studies in Rajasthan University reportedly was considering a proposal. They were looking to commission history textbooks. And those textbooks were to claim indeed state with confidence that Rana Pratap had won the battle of Haldighati against the Mughals in 1576. That was news, big news, because the existing knowledge as made available by practicing historians is that he had lost. This, uh, mind you, is different from the fact that he had not admitted defeat and continued to offer resistance to Mughal forces until much later. Hold it. I am suggesting that losing is not the same as admitting defeat. Losing a battle or a war means a certain consequence, concessions. But that necessarily does not lead to admitting defeat in the mind in such a way that you stop trying. Rana Pratap did no such thing. He did not give up. But he had lost the battle of Haldighati. How do we know? But this is clearly mentioned in every credible history book dealing with the episode. There is no need to recall at this moment another interesting fact that the general who had been fighting Rana Pratap or who had been leading Akbar's troops in the battle was himself a distinguished Rajput prince. He was called Raja Man Singh. In other words, Haldighati witnessed a fight between two Rajput princes and two Rajput rulers. Akbar himself was not directly involved in the battle. Uh, he was in a strange way though and I'll come to that shortly. The dispute 
therefore, is one of fact, not of opinion. Did Rana Pratap win the battle or did he lose it? Surely, uh, it was a collection of Rajasthan ministers, ministers who um, were members of the Rajasthan cabinet, who had no specialized training or research expertise in history, had claimed authority in coming out with the fact, quote unquote, that Rana Pratap had won. Frankly, it does not require a great deal of knowledge or expertise in history to ascertain whether Pratap had won the battle or he had lost it. It boils down to the question of how historians verify facts. How do they do that? Well, there are debates about the balance of individual facts, whether each of them is an abstract unit which makes sense in itself or whether they are independent of those units, they are organized as stories, they make sense only as parts of a larger story. These are complex debates, they can wait. For the moment, let us assume that facts as independent units, as details, can be verified. Let's assume facts can be verified. There are techniques of cross-checking facts. So, let us consider one contemporary source. Now, the term contemporary source refers to documents or recorded voices from the time in which the event in question had occurred. They are considered more reliable than later recollections or memory. The point has been made in several pieces which dealt with the controversy around the historicity of the film Padmavat, uh, which released uh, a few months ago uh, before this controversy broke out. Um, there is a distinction, in other words, between the truth value of a contemporary voice or testimony and the truth value of a later recollection or memory. That is not to say that the later memory has no real value. It does. It has a good deal of value. It simply means that it has a different kind of reality. There is a difference, for instance, between what happened and what you recall having happened 30 years later, for instance. Your recall is not necessarily without any value. But its truth claims or chances that you are telling the truth is not the same as listening to a testimony of someone who had been present at the time. This is really an obvious point and it cannot be disputed. So, we know now that recollections and myths are not history. They're useful, but not as history. They're useful within history. As a methodological question or strategy, therefore, a contemporary testimony is preferred much more, in fact, than a later recall. It is a settled practice in India and abroad among professional uh, historians. A historian of warfare in Mughal India was kind enough to pass me a primary source, one that is not terribly unfamiliar to an informed audience, Akbar Nama. 
Incidentally, there are not too many contemporary Rajput sources for details of the battle. The battle of Haldighati, that is. This lack of information is to be regretted and indeed lamented. They cannot, however, be replaced by later recollections which circulated through family memoirs or 19th century romance novels about the valor of Rajput kings. The Akbar Nama, written in Persian by Abul Fazl, is more widely read in English translation. It was done by Annette Beveridge and it was published by Asiatic Society of Calcutta in 1939. Pages 244 to 247 of this thousand page plus work refers to the Battle of Haldighati in some detail. The description is graphic and the Rana's valor is actually praised. Mind you, Rana's valor is actually praised by a chronicler who is sponsored by his enemy. Rana Pratap's forces, uh, which were a confederacy uh, of a number of Rajput clans, uh, and not just Rana's own forces, even secured initial advantages. It means the Rana could win. And there was a point when it seemed he was about to win. And then, according to the Akbar Nama, the elephants entered the battle and it took a different turn. Particularly after the sudden death of Ram Prashad. Ram Prashad was the prize elephant of Rana Pratap's forces. There was reportedly a cry at the time, a furor, that Emperor Akbar himself was now entering the battle on a swift horse. Abul Fazl writes that that might have made the enemy lose heart. What really happened is that a reinforcement arrived and the Mughal forces were strengthened. Let me quote Abul Fazl. The wretched fled and hastened to the defiles of the hill country. Unquote. Fazl concludes. And the tired imperial army chose not to pursue them. The battle was won. There are other contemporary sources too, such as Nizamuddin Ahmad's Tabakati Akbari and Abdul Qadir Badayuni's Muntakhabul Tuarik. Both uh, these works are available and the curious ones are most welcome to consult them. Frankly, there's no doubt that the Rana had indeed lost the battle. If challengers had to displace this version of events, they had to, to produce a contemporary source with equal, if not more, details. But as it came to pass, the historians who had been appointed by the Board of Studies of the University of Rajasthan tended to agree with the absurd and unrealistic claims of the politicians. I am sad, pensive as a matter of fact to have to, to announce to you that textbooks, history textbooks in Rajasthan schools were indeed now changed and they say, they claim that Pratap had won the battle of Haldighati. This is a very distressing problem and that has a connection. I made a connection with another similar incident which took place three months later. I have a question to ask around the two and that is the main question of this episode. Why does the state worry so much 
about how people consume history or what people do with history. Let's go now to the second story. Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh Yogi Adityanath had observed that history must be rewritten, that it must accommodate allegedly forgotten heroes such as King Suhail Dev, who had resisted foreign Muslim invaders, foreign in quote unquote. Yogi Adityanath was not making a particularly original argument. His critics have already observed that his interest was narrowly political or electoral. He was basically busy quoting two particular castes, Rajbhars and Parsis. Both of them worshipped Suhail Dev as their slighted ancestor. Now, the trouble is that it's just as possible to argue that the problem is larger and far more structurally embedded with the idea and practice of history in terms of a common sense utility. Utility of history. What does it mean? One of the utilities of history, as we saw a while ago, is that states sponsor school textbooks. Why? The tendency to commission rewriting historical texts on institutions and individuals involves essentially an engineering, a redistribution of sorts of public perception of greatness. It seems as though the total amount of publicly acceptable greatness is limited. It is necessary to pull down one hero in order to reassign his lost greatness to another hero. Greatness here amounts to a projected capacity to strengthen the public image of the group which draws inspiration from the valor or accomplishment of the hero in question. In this understanding, history looks like a temple with limited room. In this temple, installed heroes must not be seen to contradict one another. They must share a common political uh, position or past whether it is electoral or political or scholarly pasts or politics. Moreover, the limited room in this hypothetical temple or arena of worship often means that an entire set of gods or greats have to be cast aside to make way for another god, another set of gods or greats when devotees of the later happen to assume decisive authority. Now, let's replace place of worship with the state and devotees with political leaders. What emerges is a limited, very limited definition of history as state-sponsored and authorized past. And that is indeed how the debate appears in India, often, most often. It has other forms in the world, in other countries. Elsewhere, for instance, there are raging debates about how to deal with colonizers who had been generous benefactors of educational institutions in their home countries. There are calls to remove their statues, for instance, 
from legendary universities. These calls are typically issued by students coming from former colonies. There are similar demands to remove statues of slave traders from prominent public spaces. It means, perhaps, that a monster somewhere may well be a benefactor elsewhere. It means that there may well be contrasting histories of a single individual in terms of how his deeds have helped or harmed a people and prospects of their empowerment. Recently, an Indian member of parliament um, delivered a rousing lecture in a university debating club in the United Kingdom. He reportedly called for the United Kingdom to pay reparations for the untold damages which were caused to India's prospects of entering into capitalist modernity with greater wealth and equality. Now, common to all of these demands is an individual or a group claiming to speak for a wounded people and demanding compensation for perceived wrongs committed in the past by ancestors of a projected antagonist. In most instances, the projected antagonist is an amorphous generality or a collective which happens to celebrate the targeted villain for an entirely different reason. Now, all this is only partly about history. It's not as though uh, it has a universally transparent and consensual meaning that is understood by everyone and clearly and equally. It is not as though that meaning can be encapsulated and somehow made to circulate through a leak-proof regime of tightly controlled dissemination. History is not only a tightly regulated, university-authorized, practiced only by trained and licensed professionals kind of academic discipline. In reality, it has a worldwide life in public circulation. It is also called the public life of history. When history professionals use that term, public life of history, they usually mean non-professional or non-rigorous or amateur history. It means an unlicensed practice of history by irresponsible people who play with a fragile commodity or a fire and they might either break it to pieces or burn someone else's property down. They're novices. Uh, with amateurs writing history, the initial suspicion harbored by a historian is usually that such a person is more likely to lack rigor and positive intent. It is the most valid suspicion in India. It does happen. It does tend to happen often enough. In the past, communities have been targeted and riots have been engineered through carefully designed messages that have been strategically circulated. Now, there is also a history of governments directly dictating to official agencies as to how school textbooks on history should be written. While it is appropriate uh, that professional historians resist unwarranted intervention by the current rulers, at some point they'll have to start wondering how and why the very logic of a government agency writing textbook history is in itself suspicious. 
There is an umbrella organization of professional historians in India. There is no reason why it cannot assume a more proactive role in writing school textbooks. In fact, until recently, senior history professionals in India considered writing textbooks an enterprise beneath their dignity. Now, there are exceptions, but they are precisely that, exceptions. In India, the contrast between professional history and politicized public history is sharper, presumably because professional history itself has not even entered a senior citizen state. Somewhere along the way, the public history that had a vibrant life and legitimacy had to be rendered illegitimate for professional history to emerge as the sovereign arbiter of India's pasts. The relevant questions can uh, therefore be organized under two or three broad heads. Who can be a good enough authority to think and write and circulate a history that remains attentive at once to requirements of verifiability, rigor and vulnerable selves calling for encouragement and restitution from the state? How to work out acceptable vulnerabilities in a way that successfully filters out manufactured vulnerabilities from well-meaning and genuine ones. Finally, is it at all possible to practice legitimate but segmented histories, catering to their respective constituencies without them coming to blows? To reframe the last question, is it possible to write credible, messy histories accommodating contrasting icons and multiple selves in a large canvas? I recall a blurb on the back cover of Jugen Osterhemmel's A Transformation of the World, a global history of the 19th century. The blurb said that the scholarly book beats the popular history book in their own turf. Now, Adityanath to Osterhemmel is a long journey. It is for the professional practitioner of history to make it. The Adityanaths of the world are not going to hold back. There must be space for competing gods and consumers or end users of history. We must somehow be made to see that pasts, like presents, is not all perfection or glory and that no intervention from the state can entirely erase or elevate inconvenient pasts. There's a spectral life of history too beyond its professional or public lives. There, what do you think about the episode? What are your concerns? What did you like or not like about the last episode? Please write in to us. I'm looking forward to your feedback, waiting for your inputs to enrich my next episode and the episodes after that. This is Onirban, your friend signing off. Do not forget to subscribe to this podcast, History Chatter, in Epilogue Media website or your familiar web streaming platforms such as GeoSavan, Ghana and Apple Podcasts and several others. Looking forward to the next episode, which should be as entertaining as as informative. Thank you very much.